Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. Last week, Paul drew a picture of what the church should be, individual believers seeking to grow spiritually in a unified manner in the church. But their foundation to be built on and rally around was still to this and to this day the good news, what we call the gospel. Folks, if we are not here to talk about Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, and to share Jesus, then we have lost our purpose. So today in chapter 4, we go from the church to now we focus on the minister, the steward, and the servant, as well as those who support them. So the gospel of the good news of Jesus is our rally cry. And we could use some good news this morning, couldn't we? If you look at your news and you see what's going on in the world, we all could use some good news. And as a follower of Christ many years ago, God called me for some reason to be a mouthpiece for that good news, of which I can't believe. But I am certainly not perfect in doing that, but have and will continue, depending on God, to give him my best efforts. I tell you this because this morning... Chapter 4, we see that the characteristics of ministers should have and what people should expect from them. This is a real MRI, if you could say, of, of a preacher and any pastor of any church. And so right now at the moment, many are preaching and listening to sermons that uh, I pray are centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ because I know every word that I say will be judged just as every word you say. And here will be judged. Well, as I stated a moment ago, we could all use some good news this morning. And you may be in your regular routine today, or you may be struggling with something. But maybe this morning you are struggling with your own will. Maybe you're trying to to find God's purpose. You're hurting or, or maybe simply wandering. It is my prayer for you today that God will meet you where you are and open your heart and open your will to him as we walk through the scriptures today. Let's see how Paul is lovingly trying to correct the church in Corinth. And I've got to tell you, you know, the thing about preaching through a Bible is it's kind of like uh, the golf the golf player that you have to play the ball where it lies. We're doing that today. Today is about the preacher. It's about what the preacher ought to be. It's about what leaders ought to be. And so here I am. I don't preach this as someone who's got it mastered. I don't preach this as I am better than somebody. But I want to let you know, church, whoever is in this pulpit has guidelines. And there are expectations you should have of me or any person that is up here leading you and serving you. And so that's what we're looking at today. Uh, there's an article by a website by, by a guy named Van Coe. He says, 15 signs of an arrogant pastor. Whoo, here we go. I hope I don't get hit. In preparing for this message, I read passages of arrogant, unhealthy pastor. And as I read it, one, I hope you could emerge, or I could emerge with a passing grade. And uh, two, illustrate what Paul's trying to teach the church this morning. Fifteen signs. This is not an exhaustible list, but it is a pretty good one. They are unteachable. They know everything. They're inflexible. They're impatient. They're unforgiving. They're no earthly good. They would rather be popular than biblical. They refuse to share the spotlight. They have no accountability. No one to answer to. 
They deflect the biblical standards of their role. They want to be treated like rock stars. They are passive aggressive from the pulpit. In other words, they will they will use things that they've talked in confidence with with families and people and counseling or whatever. And they will just air it out. They won't name names, but you will know who they're talking about. Some of them care most about their appearance. They flaunt their financial success. They abuse authority and they lack empathy and compassion. So, you know, if you're taking your scorecard, you can let me know later how I scored. But these, these are some of the things that we shouldn't be, and these are things that were happening in the church at Corinth. But all of these things that I've read, they come from biblical passages that talk about what an overseer or any Christian, the way they should act. And so in today's passage, the spiritual leadership of Corinth, they had lost sight of what was important in ministering to the church And the church members didn't expect any better of their leaders. Why are there so many terrible preachers, terrible acting preachers in this world today? Because that is what the church, the people have flocked to and they want. So bad leaders being reinforced by bad church members. That's what was happening at the church in Corinth. Both of them were shirking their biblical responsibility in favor of their selfish motives. It is my it is my responsibility to make sure that I rightly divide the word of God in the most accurate and biblical and harmonizing way with the scripture so that God gets the glory and not me. You your expectation is that anybody who preaches should do, should do the same thing, not just tell you what your tickling ears want to hear. And there's a lot of that going on these days in different places. But again, let's jump into the scripture. Number one, the minister should be a faithful servant or some translations say steward, a faithful servant or steward. In verses one through six, if you've got a copy of God's word, it says, so look at Apollos and me as mere servants who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. The reason he said, Paul said, look at me and Apollos, if you realize a couple chapters ago, the churches were being divided about which preacher they thought was best. Some thought it was Paul, some thought it was Apollos, and so on. So they were divided by who they liked better. Verse 2, now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. And as for me, it... Matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praises is due. Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I have been saying. If you pay attention to what I have quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. So as we go back and we look at these six verses, in in verse 1, we see that Paul established the tone of this chapter in the very, very first verse. He says, Look, you as a church are divided into which preacher you like the most. Don't look at us 
as superstars or, or rock star preachers. Don't look at us even as has-beens, like we are the guys that used to be popular. Look at us as what we are, plain and simple servant of God. If you think that my sermon is great today, I am grateful for it. If you think my sermon is trash today, I'm grateful for that too. But either way, I know that it's not about your opinions of it. It's not even about my opinions of it. It is about God's opinion of it. Now, don't look at us as, again, these great... Don't put me or anybody else on a pedestal. We are we are just people like you and I. And Jesus Christ is our master. We serve him, not ourselves, and not our church, believe it or not. We serve him and him alone. When it uses the word servant, I'm going to show you on a screen here just because uh, I'm not a big one on telling you the Greek word for everything. But I do want to say here, the Greek word for servant here is huperetes. Huperetes, which means an under rower, an under rower. So Paul is saying that, that I am an under rower. What was an under rower? You've seen the movies where you have this big, huge galley ship and there's these men down in the bottom of it with oars sticking out of the, the boat and they're all in that, the bottom of the boat rowing the boat. You don't see them. I'm sure the view is not great if you're one of those guys. I'm sure the smell is not that great. I mean, you're spending all your time giving all your energy to get that boat where it needs to go, but you don't even see the view. All you see is the sweat stains of the guy in front of you and the smell of the person beside you and behind you. But what he was saying here is that we are not the, the, the glory boys that are up on top enjoying the view. As a servant of Christ, we are not seen we are not heard. We are just doing the work because the, the boat that we are powering is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if they don't see me. It doesn't matter if once I die, I will be forgotten about in the time frame of a year, maybe, or maybe even a minute. I don't know. That does not matter. But what does matter is that if while I was breathing on this earth and while you were breathing on this earth, that we did something to power, to move the message of the gospel out. And Jesus Christ is the pilot. For some reason, there are people that think that their Christian service should be exonified, should be honored, should be out there for everybody to see. But there is nothing in Scripture that supports that. We are to be under rowers. Thankless work, repetitive work, not always the greatest view or smells, but we are serving Christ. Paul himself, you never know, as many journeys as he went on and as many times as he was in jail, he might very well have pulled that word from a time when he was an under rower himself. But again, remember, the church is fighting about who is more popular, and he's saying, look, guys, it's not about being popular. It's about being the guy that's unseen. It's not about us. It's about him. And then when you look at steward, that was a word, that, or another translation says, who has been put in charge of, that is a koinomus. A koinomus, which means in Paul's days, it would have been a slave that the master entrusted in his home and business. Yes, slavery was a thing back then. And yes, they had slaves, and if there was one that they trusted, the master trusted, he would place them in charge of all of that. A great biblical example of that would be Jacob and Potiphar. If you look in Genesis 39, 
So it literally means a manager of the household or the manager of household affairs. Ministers, this is not my church. This is not your church. This is God's church to do with whatever he feels like he needs to do and to lead in whatever way he needs to do. I don't need to tie my identity to a church. You do not need to tie your identity. We tie our identity to Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus Christ has placed us as a caregiver of this beautiful thing called the gospel. There's a sense here that we own nothing. Just like a slave would have been back in those days. Ministry is not about serving ourselves or making sure our bank account gets big or our garages get filled with things. Ministers should focus on building God's kingdom, not their own. And ministry, serving Jesus, is about getting his kingdom bigger and working whatever God has given you to work. And if you don't believe me, on Wednesday nights we've been going through the parables of Jesus. Find you a list of the parables of Jesus. Read it for yourself. When Jesus gives us something to work with, he expects us to work it. And he will only give us according to what he knows we can handle. So the proper servant or minister or steward is faithful to their master. Here's the thing. The people, the church at Corinth, they were, the believers were arrogant. But what Paul is showing us here is that if we focus on being faithful to Jesus, an arrogance will not be a problem. If we focus on serving Jesus and serving his people, arrogance will not be a problem. You may not be a paid Christian minister here this morning, but every one of you has a circle of influence Over somebody, all of you lead somebody, whether it be as a father, a husband, a wife, a a grandparent, a teacher, a coach, a Bible study teacher, a VBS teacher. We all have people that we influence. This message is for you as much as it is for me. Paul was writing again. He wasn't writing to the lost. He was writing to the church, and you and I are the church. So let's move on. We see that there are three criteria that servants and ministers are judged by, and we see that in verses 3 through 6 that we just read. Number one, the first criteria is the judgment of others, or some translations say human authority. Things belonging to men is a way that they put that. But it, it is it is not a great thing, but it is a true thing. Everybody, and even me, are going to be judged by the end of the day. Y'all are going to think either that was a great one, that was a bad one, that was a dog, that was, uh, you know, I, I should have gone and, and watched it online or something like that. You can make whatever judgments you want. You are going to judge what I am saying. In every church, y'all will judge what the preacher is saying. That is part of the judgment. But what criteria are you using? Are you using what is popular? Are you using what all the popular preachers say? Or what the popular preachers dress like? Or the popular popular preachers, the trends, the styles, the outward appearances? Or whatever is cool today in church? Or whatever is cool in the world? Those are the criteria that when people judge, that's what they look at. But when someone judges another... They are doing what is only meant for God, because God is the judge. 
The second one, and you see in verses 3 and 4, a judgment of self. Paul knew that it was easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking our selfish ambition is some type of spiritual service. We've got to be very careful, folks, that we don't cloud our selfish ambition into some type of we think that we are being martyrs when all the while it's about being prideful. You know, someone says something about a lesson that is taught or someone talks about the church or talks about me or, or all that kind of stuff. Look, that, that's fine, but we don't need to go in there and say, well, it's just my cross to bear. It's just part of what I'm doing. Look, we're going to be judged. And we got to be careful that we don't use our selfish ambition. Look, I know the Lord wants me to have an airplane because I could, I could go all kinds of places and I could do great work for y'all. And the Lord has just said, I need to get an airplane. Right. No. But all joking aside, we got to be careful that the things that we say God wants us to do are not things that it's just we want to do. Because we need to judge ourselves. We are judged by others. And then most of all, we will be judged by God. You see, the Corinth, the church of Corinth had a very low evaluation of Paul. And it mattered very little to him what they thought about him. He said, God will bring our deepest, darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. The pride that you have in your favorite preacher really will not matter at the end. Ultimately, at the end of the day, God's judgment will be the only judgment that matters. So a minister should be faithful servant and steward to God will be the judge. The second thing that we see is a prideful church member versus a humble servant. A prideful church member versus a humble servant. You see... I want you to, when we read this, I want you to read it with sarcasm. I want you to understand how Paul wrote this. He was being sarcastic, but he wasn't doing it to make them feel bad about themselves. He was doing that to wake them up from their selfish, prideful thinking. So if we read it with a sarcastic lens, it makes more sense. Look at verses 7 through 9. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast about it as though it were not a gift? Basically, he's saying, stop taking credit for yourself, the things that God is doing in your life. Then verse 8 says, you think you already have what you need. You think you're already rich. You have begun to reign in the kingdom without us. I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. In other words, he was saying, look, if the end times has come, we we wish you were reigning. That means we would be in heaven too. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. This is no different if you've been working in your business for years and all of a sudden the, the, the boss's kid just graduated college and they come in and now they're your boss and they know everything about the business that you spent all your time doing. That's kind of what's going on here. The the church has outgrown their need and their respect for Paul and the OG apostles. But he says, look, we're like a spectacle. Now, there's history behind that word because the word is kind of the word that we get theater from when you go to the movie theater. You see, when Paul says this, he says, uh, when we have become a spectacle to the entire world, he speaks of how the apostles were being humiliated. 
This kind of humiliation was the greatest horror to the pride of the Corinthian Christians. Here's the thing. When I tell, when I preach and I'm talking and I think about it even for myself, if you want me to sit here and talk to you about the benefits of, of the crowns that we receive and, and the blessings that we get in heaven and, and all the great things you get on earth today, that is great. But no one's talking. They're all talking about the crown, but no one is talking about the cross. No one is talking about the suffering. No one is talking about the work it takes day to day to get up and be a man or woman of God, to be a husband or a wife that makes spiritual things a priority in their relationship and to their children and make serving in the church a priority so that others can see and can understand and feel and accept the gospel. But we see here that that actually, when he talked about a spectacle in the theaters, this is where they would have these main events in the Colosseum. And after all the events were over and the big things had happened, they would bring out these um, weak prisoners. Most of them were Christians. And they would unleash the most fiercest animals that they had. It wasn't even a competition. But way back in the day when uh, I remember... Uh, we had a, a girl in our youth group when I was in youth group, and her dad was what they called a meat man. You're like, what is a meat man? Well, he was a wrestler, and he was paid to get beat up on. When they would have wrestling at the Spartanburg Memorial Auditorium or somewhere around here, they would pay him for the champions to come in and beat up on him. These folks, these these people that were being beat up on, there was no way they were coming out alive. And so people would just watch that and think that that was funny and think that that was entertainment as Christians were being slaughtered by wild, hungry beasts. So Paul is using that analogy. We know Paul was a sports fan. We know that Paul was probably in the Colosseum a lot. He loved those kind of things, but he's saying, look, we're just like clowns to them. We are like these these these." dispensable, disposable people that they put in front of these animals. And the Corinthian church didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to think that that was their role. They were, they were the ones in the high seats. They were the ones in the box seats with the food and all of that great stuff. No. Paul was saying, look, we, we are out here, the apostles gave their lives for Jesus Christ. Paul gave his life for Jesus Christ. The church at Corinth was giving nothing for Christ. It was all for themselves. Paul was laying out the two major problems in the Corinthian church. Number one, they were proud of how spiritual they were. They were very impressed with themselves. And two, they were embarrassed of Paul's weakness and humble state. We see in verses 10 through 13, Paul gives the Corinthians a reality check. He says, our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. Even now we go hungry and thirsty. We don't even have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn a living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We gently, uh, we appeal gently when evil things are said about us 
Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. So what Paul is telling them is, look, we are the ones, we are being slighted. We are not being pushed up. We are not in the social circles. We are not being invited to all the cool places. We are the ones that are suffering here. And we, you know, if you think that you are so great, try this. But they didn't want anything to do with that. This was not something the Corinthian church wanted to embrace. You see, it's one thing to preach the word, but it's another thing to practice it. It's one thing to preach it, but another thing to practice it. Is your picture of what it means to live as a disciple of Christ based on the Bible, or is it based on some assumptions and worldly viewpoints? Are you willing, let me ask you this, are you willing to lose some honor? Are you willing to be dishonored for Christ? Are you willing for your faith in Christ to cost you something? Or do you expect to be distinguished and adorned and admired? Have you responded with humility and kindness when someone has attacked your faith in Christ? Or do you repay evil with evil? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, humility will beat pride and arrogance every single time. And our third point, face your spiritual arrogance head on. Face your spiritual arrogance head on. He says, I am, his tone moves from sarcasm to that of loving correction, much like a father correcting their son or daughter. He says, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children, for even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you, so I urge you, to imitate me. This would be, the, in today's terms, this would be the pastor that planted a church and started a church. He was their spiritual father. He was the first, their first leader. And notice what he says in verse 16. So I urge you to imitate me. What confidence does it take to say that? What guts does it take to say that? Look, they didn't have Bibles back then. They didn't have a church on every corner. They didn't have an app that they could pull up and get their their spiritual intake for the day. All they had were Old Testament writings, and they had people who were an example. And so Paul says, look, imitate me. Those of you that have reared or have children, or grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, or you are exposed to children. How do they learn things? When they come out of the, out of the womb, they're like, they, they can't talk. They make baby sounds. And when they say mama, dada, everybody goes crazy. And I understand that. But there, there is some time there where they don't know how to talk, right? You just have to know which cry means what. You need to know which squint on the face means what. You need to know what smell means what, right? Because they can't communicate. But all of a sudden, when they start getting a little older, you see them doing things that you didn't realize they picked on, they picked up on that you did. I mean, it, it, it's just part of life. Your kids begin doing things that they've seen you do. And so now here, Paul is saying, look, imitate me. Do what I do. You may not understand how to verbalize it. You may not understand how to read it. But if you do what I do, you will be doing what the Lord has called you to do. Paul took the responsibility of leading a life worthy of being imitated. 
My question is, do you do that? Do you let your children and grandchildren and the children of our church say, look, I know that you don't fully understand who God is now. I know you don't fully understand the gospel. I know you don't fully understand the importance of the gospel and the importance of church. But let my life show you. Would you be brave enough to do that? Paul wasn't merely pretending to be a father figure. He actually had served as a spiritual father to them. He was their first pastor. And he says in verse 17, That's why I have sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, to the Lord. He will remind you how I follow Christ Jesus as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. You see, Paul reminds them again that it's not his work that he's taking credit for. It is Jesus Christ that changed their lives. He says in verse 19, some of you have become arrogant. Or some translations say some of you have become puffed up. Thinking I will not visit you again, but I will come and soon if the Lord lets me. And then I will find out whether these arrogant people just give pretentious speeches or whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. Which do you choose? Should I come with a rod to punish you? Or should I come with love and a gentle spirit? Kind of like the parent asking the child, do you want the paddle or a hug? I'll take the hug. Right? He's telling them, look, as a loving father, he's saying, look, I am going to come back. And what will I find? Which, which would, you, would you rather change what you're doing now so that you get the hug? Or do you want the paddle? But daddy's coming home. Paul leaves the ball in their court. Which Paul did they want to come back? A Paul with the rod of correction? You, and when he talks about the rod of correction, uh, that's a, an illustration referring to the shepherds, you know, the, the sticks with the, the, the hook on the end. You know, I, They look cute in in plays, in Christmas plays, especially when the little kids are dressed up in blankets acting like shepherds. They look really cute. But the purpose of those sticks were to beat the sheep if they started getting in the wrong direction. The hook was to hook them back or to beat off something that was trying to attack them. And so he's saying, look, I've got this rod. I will use it. Or I will encourage you. Paul was setting up the need for church discipline. And it is a principle of life that those who will not govern themselves need to be governed. This section prepares the way that we will deal with in the next couple chapters about discipline in a church. And I'll be honest with you, most churches do a terrible job of church discipline. But there is a biblical format and there is a way to do it that is godly and is right. You see, this section was prepared the way for that because sin was running rampant in the church and they had to deal with it biblically. Oh, woe to the church that has a pastor that has lost his way like this is here. And woe to the church that let him do it and supports it. Because here's the thing. That church, if they're supporting this bad behavior, they're becoming enablers. It's almost like the person that if they're strung out on something and their friends want to keep them strung out because it makes them feel good too. That's a vicious cycle that's out there today. And I praise God that by his grace, that's not us. 
but it could be. And there are things in our church and in my life that need to be addressed. I am not squeaky clean up here. I'm not, I'm not up here preaching and saying, Woo! I dodged a bullet today. No. It hits me right square in the face. Just like everybody else. So as we wrap up our time today, beware of spiritual arrogance. Hold pastors, including myself, to the standard Paul is setting. I, I, I tell people all the time, Whatever I say, match it to Scripture, and where it doesn't match, tell me, because I don't want to be wrong. Because here's the thing. If I'm preaching God's Word and you get mad at me, you're not mad at me. You're mad at the Word. (laughs) But check me on these things. When you go and you hear your favorite preacher online or you hear... You go to another church and you're visiting. Check these things and make sure these things are right. And as a church, don't, don't let things slide and don't be arrogant and prideful like the church at Corinth. Expect more from your Christian leaders and make sure they are pointing to Christ and not themselves. And then finally, don't place yourself or any spiritual leader on a pedestal that is meant for Christ alone. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your scripture today. And I would like to say that it was a a warm fuzzy, but it was not. Your word plainly shows, just like a scalpel, just like an MRI, that there are things in every church where we let pride and arrogance sneak in. And we think it's all about the blessings, and we don't talk about the sufferings. It's all about us being seen, and not about the gospel being present. Lord, remind us to be those under rowers. Remind us to be the ones that are doing the work so that you get the glory. Because there are people in this room today that need the gospel. There are people in this room today that need some humility. And there are people in this room today that need to serve. But their pride won't let them. They have talked themselves out of it time and time again. Their children need them to step up. Their church needs them to step up. Their jobs need them to step up. They need to step up for themselves to honor you. Yes, I am going to have to answer for every sermon I preach and every word that I share from your word. But they're going to have to also answer for every word that they've heard and let slide. God, it is a great responsibility. It is a great privilege to stand on this pulpit today and even think that I could say anything that would be wise. Lord, if there's anything that I've said that's not your scripture, it doesn't matter. But God, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us of what's important. And that God, today, if there is one person here today that wants to make a commitment to you, that wants to know for sure that they have the gospel, that they have the Holy Spirit in their lives, they want to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, may this moment be the time, Lord, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?